Hello, folks, and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast, and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Each week, I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and, of course, improving your athletic performance. And before I introduce this week's guest, I'd like to say thank you so much to everyone who made a donation to the High Performance Human Podcast this week. We had a record number of donations and we wanted to say thank you to all, as well as give a specific shout out to longtime listener Jonathan Kitto, who set up a monthly regular donation. We appreciate this and all of your donations, which ensure we can keep operating the podcast. This week, my guest is Brad Cairns. Brad was one of the very first guests on this podcast back in 2017. After reading Primal Endurance, the book he co-authored with Mark Sisson, I was inspired to find an alternative to the carb-driven, no-pain, no-gain approach that I'd adopted for most of my triathlon journey. In fact, these learnings form the basis for my high-performance human approach today. So, it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to the show. And let's crack on and hear from Brad himself. Welcome back to the show. I say welcome back to the show, Mr. Brad Cairns. Oh my gosh, what a pleasure to be back, Simon. You're doing great. Keep up the good work. You're on a roll and it's always fun to reconnect. And we did some talking offline about the various uh, interesting points. So I'm excited. I appreciate the preparation and so much to talk about always. Well, there is, and you were one of my very first guests. I'll, I'll point people towards that podcast, and hopefully they can see how much my presentation skills have progressed. But also, I hope in the, in this podcast, we'll have a little bit longer than my my initial uh, attempts were to keep it under 30 minutes. But people like, when I speak to people like yourself, they've got so much to uh, to chat about. It's almost impossible. But um, hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to chart your journey as well from that initial conversation, because it, it doesn't seem like four years, does it? Wow. It's been four years, huh? Yeah. And we were just coming up to the, I think in August is when we published the first edition of the podcast. So we're on, I think we're on number 206 this week. So yeah, going strong, but, but still a ways to go to catch you guys up. There's a lot of great content out there. Sometimes it gets a little overwhelming at trying to keep up with everything and especially trying to sort out the various strong differences of opinion, especially in the diet scene, but also in the athletic training, there's people with different philosophies and they have, you know, a strong argument and you can walk away confused really easily. So I think it's really important for people to look for common ground and some foundation that's uh, undisputable and then test things out for yourself personally and see what works for you. And I remember when I was competing on the triathlon circuit, uh, there were so many different uh, training styles amongst the different athletes. And some people were just, uh, like soldiers, they could go out there all day long and just, you know, wake up in the morning and every day was about training until the sun went down. And I was not one of those people. And I was very frustrated and discouraged trying to keep up with the standards that were set by the leading athletes. And so very early into my career, I had to have a reckoning and, and you know, go home and, and look at myself in the mirror and say, okay, well, what's, what's, how's this going to play out here? Because uh, I've shown that it, it's impossible for me to try to, uh, you know, keep up with uh, mm-hmm. other guys. So I might as well just focus on race day and see if I can keep up with them then, and then not worry about keeping up with them day after day after day in training. So yeah, that's, that's I- kind of uh, a big awakening for a lot of athletes. 
my my recollection of I wasn't deeply into the you know knowing the personalities in the sport like I do now but my recollection of reading triathlete magazines is Mike Pig would have been one of your competitors who could just go all day but he paid for it in the end with his health didn't he you know so uh, I guess that that sort of that sort of lifestyle catches up with everybody eventually uh it seems like there's a lot of occasions of long time endurance athletes coming up with you know sort of tragic health problems that uh, land later in life or cause them to uh, curtail their career short mm. and so i think we all have to recognize that this extreme devotion to endurance and ultra endurance is oftentimes not correlated with health there's some great articles um, you can find online uh, one's called running on empty outside magazine another one was called uh, one foot in the grave and you just google that that article title and they have these uh, stories chronicling, you know, leading athletes that came up and blew out their hearts. And uh, it's now being shown as this, ex it's called the extreme endurance exercise hypothesis. And there's some good science showing that the heart does not like to be pegged up at 155 beats per minute for five hours every day for a decade or two decades. And uh, I think it's going to help us kind of dial back this obsession with mileage and consistency and these notions that you know we think are going to help us progress as endurance athletes but uh, there's a better way to do it and that's uh, like you talked about offline uh, when we wrote primal endurance we're trying to allow people to pursue these extreme endurance goals if they love them and enjoy them but do it in a healthy way rather than in this chronic cardio pattern that just makes you tired and burnt out you've had Dr. Phil Maffetone on your show more regularly than I have. And he also wrote a good article with Paul Larson, a collaboration called Fit But Unhealthy, which to your point about, you know, we can see these guys with the super low body fat cranking out the miles, but that doesn't mean they're healthy. They're just, they're just lucky enough to have the time to be able to do that exercise. And I guess also, Brad, um, there's, there's an outlook on life that you have when you're in your 20s, perhaps an indestructible one that it doesn't matter now, you know, I can cope with this stuff. And when I get to my 50s, you know, I'll, I'll sort it out then. And then there's an outlook that I don't know how old you are now, mid, mid to late 56. 50s? Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm 57. So we're from that same era. And you have a diff, you definitely have a different outlook when you get into your 50s, don't you about, right. So I'm enjoying life now, but how long can I keep enjoying life? And what have I got to do to make sure I'm still doing this stuff when I'm 65 and 75. Yeah, I interviewed uh, the great Canadian triathlete, Olympic gold and Olympic silver medalist, Simon Whitfield. And I asked him, this was in his retirement. The interview was several years ago. So he was just maybe a year or two or three into retirement. And I said, well, what do you do now? What kind of fitness uh, regimen do you have? Are you still racing for fun? Are you doing something else? And he says, you know, today I'm coached by my 80-year-old self. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that was he wants to honor <laughs> his 80-year-old self with all the decisions that he makes in everyday fitness. And so one's 80-year-old self might not be happy when you're in those extreme modes that are best you know, contemplated when you're a youth. And I think, you know, it was very valuable for me personally to push the, the, the absolute limits of human performance and dedicate my life for nine years to competing on the pro circuit and basically sleeping and training and trying to recover and just pushing the edge all the time. But of course, that's a, a very uh, relatively short phase of life. 
And I don't think it's healthy to continue on for years and years in that extreme endurance mode, just like an Olympic athlete. You know, the best athletes will have, you know, two Olympics, maybe three Olympic games in them, and then it's time to move on. And so, you know, to recalibrate and to uh, try to try to find a goal that elicits passion and devotion and, and great enjoyment, but maybe not necessarily coming at the, at the extreme physical cost that's required when you're competing at the elite level. Uh, that's what I'm all about now. And I think that's one of the mo- my most favorite themes to present is that it's, it's wonderful to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life, but these goals should always be age appropriate, lifestyle appropriate, and you know, in our age group, we're very concerned with things like longevity, disease prevention, uh, recovery, rather than just you know pushing forward like uh, you know like like crazy people that you might see when people are in their twenties. We talked about primal endurance. I mentioned to you uh, just before we started the show. Um, I picked up your book. I, I don't recall how I was introduced to it, but I read it from cover to cover very very quickly. And I'm thinking, this is just an awesome way of approaching life. Uh, you know, I think perhaps I was in that phase where I was looking for something else as well. So, you know, there's there's a catalyst and, and sometimes there's a bit of luck involved. I gifted, it, it must have been just before Christmas when I first picked, uh, in the year I picked it up. So I gifted it to about 20 clients. And to this day, they still come back to me and say what profound impact they had it, it had on their lives. You know, maybe it wasn't immediate. Maybe it's been a slow burner, but... You know, it doesn't need to be immediate, does it? We're talking about the long term here. We don't need to have quick fixes. And the, the, if we can talk about primal endurance to get us going on this conversation, the, 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 there were two aspects to the book, I think, the two prongs. One was the training and fitness, which was um, let's get rid of that no pain, no gain mentality. You know, staying in training in the black hole, the threshold zone with a kind of hard, you know, where we get kind of fit, but we never get kind of recovered. Mm. And and sort of let's let's look at more of a polarized uh, something that's spoken of um, quite strongly by uh, Phil Maffetone, um, Stephen Seiler, Dan Plews, and Paul Larson, you know, and a lot of other very very smart people, smarter than me, that, that have done research on this. And then the nutrition was let's ditch some of those carbs, um, let's go on the low carb, high fat. Um, train and see how that works and it caused me to think about my own consumption of carbohydrate my own training levels and I've I've changed significantly since then and been an evangelist for all this and it's probably a bit tiresome for some people to listen to but it's really made a difference to me and those people who have followed those principles have also come back and said you know they can run now um, and they can run regularly and they don't get injured and they don't get they don't get so tired and why didn't I know this before so what was what was your awakening to that whole um, methodology, Brad, that then caused you and Mark to write the book? Well, I guess to talk about the dietary aspect first, and we need to distinguish between refined nutrient deficient carbohydrates mm. and natural, nutritious, healthy, colorful carbohydrates. Uh, so I have to speak very carefully because again, we're wading into this area where there's a lot of dispute. There's a lot of factions and, uh, you know, people can, uh, dismiss a, a statement, you know, out, out of hand, uh, not knowing the details. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when you say low carb approach, 
um, you're comparing to the ridiculous excess of carbohydrate intake that is the uh, modern world centerpiece, as well as the uh, template for endurance training for mm. years and decades. And this is a you know, multi-million dollar, billion dollar industry to sell you the, the sugars and the gels and the, and the powdered drinks and the solutions uh, that dump sugar down your throat as you're exercising. So that's the thing that we have to call into question and realize that this is not uh, aligned with health and mm. that there's a, a superior way to pursue peak performance. Uh, but that said, uh, the guys who are racing the Tour de France, the, the finest endurance athletes on the planet, they're consuming a lot of carbs during uh, the 21-day the tour at, at dinner time and uh, even on the bicycle. And so we, we can't, uh, you know, try to, um, you know, put these blanket statements in place and tell endurance athletes to go out there and ride for three hours. But, hey, don't take those nasty sugary energy gels because those aren't very healthy. And so, you know, if we're talking about, uh, the the overall big picture approach, I think the athlete in particular is obligated to pursue the most nutrient dense diet possible because we're asking more from our bodies than the person in the next cubicle at work who all they have to do is walk to the subway station, the tube station, whatever you want to call it, and then sit at a, sit at a desk and then make it home and collapse on the couch and watch entertainment for hours. So that, that body doesn't have a high nutritional requirement like someone who's out there trying to put in these great workouts and go through busy day, busy life. So if you start to contemplate wow, how can I get the most nutrient dense diet possible? Uh, you're going to be looking to foods that are more likely high in protein, uh, perhaps high in natural nutritious fats. And then they're going to have some carbohydrate values when you're looking at, you know, this, this overall plate option, and you're going to need those carbohydrates if you're burning a lot of energy and training, but that's a clear distinction from shoving sugar down your throat and thinking that's aligned with, with health or performance. And so that's kind of the branch off that we've taken is look, if you need to suck down all this sugar, you're probably training it, you know, improperly mm. as well. So we have like a two pronged approach here to say, um, why do you need all that junk? Why are you overtraining in that manner? And then, Hey, let's tone down the training. Let's tone down the heart rate. And then you can kind of nourish yourself with healthy foods and feel great uh, on both tracks. Yeah. And I suppose we should also say that when we talk about Tour de France athletes or elite triathletes that are doing 20 to 30 hours of training, we, we are talking about superhumans and the majority of people that are going to read your book, they're going to listen to this podcast are not going to ever get anywhere near that level. They're probably they're probably doing eight to 10 hours a week of training. So there's going to be, there's going to be some times when they're doing perhaps a long bike ride, when they need to fuel it with a, a sports drink just for that one session, but they definitely don't need to turn up to the pool in the morning for that one hour swim with a bottle of carbohydrate, mm. eating that power bar. And they definitely don't need to, in a two hour bike ride, have the person, the first stop when somebody needs to pee in the hedge and they're chowing down on their energy bar. You know, they don't need to do that. So uh, again, I think, I think we should, yeah, let's let's follow the principles of elite athletes at the appropriate time. But for the majority of time, we, we perhaps should be thinking about eating a healthy, um, sustainable, nutritious diet. And we can get away with that, can't we, for training eight to 10 hours a week? Oh, sure. And I think most of that training should be at the aerobic heart rates, which is 
the the definition of that is that you're burning predominantly fat. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the sugar, the extra carbohydrate that you need is going to help get you through the workout. Um, doesn't have to be a lot. That's this whole concept of fat adapted endurance training, where you're really, really good at burning fat. You're good at fasting and and doing exercises like that to build this concept called metabolic flexibility. And the workouts are not something that's going to, you know, tax you to the extent that you need to shove sugar down your throat. And so if you can regulate your heart rate for the most part, uh, doing these aerobic workouts and Maffetone is the leader here with this calculation of 180 minus your age in beats per minute. And that would be called the maximum aerobic heart rate. So your workout should be at or below that number, the vast majority of your training time, if you're training for endurance goals, and then it's pretty easy. It's pretty comfortably paced. A lot of people are frustrated when they realize they have to regulate their heart rate down that low because they're used to going faster and they feel fine, even 10 or 15 or 20 beats above that maximum aerobic heart rate. But this is the heart rate at which you teach your body to burn fat with greatest efficiency. And if you drift above that, you called it the black hole, that familiar term where if you drift above that routinely, with your general workout pace, you're going to be burning a greater percentage of glucose, a lesser percentage of fat, and you're going to become a good sugar burning athlete, which is not as desirable as becoming a fat burning athlete. And if we go above that level and we're into that black hole, we're also creating sort of some muscle damage, aren't we? Some cellular damage, so oxidative stress, which which means that you require more recovery. Now, I've I've likened this to if, if you if you've got ten dollars, Brad, but you borrow eleven dollars from me, or you borrow a dollar from me to spend because you're overspending today, you're not going to notice it today, are you? And you could probably keep borrowing a dollar off me every day for a week, and you're not going to notice it then. But all of a sudden, after a month, you notice that you're in you're in debt, and and. That, that for me is the principle of if you train just a little bit too hard, but you do it every day, it doesn't, it doesn't mm. take effect immediately. But after a while doing this, you, you notice that you're not sleeping so well, you're feeling sore, you're not recovering, you maybe got in that little scratchy throat and, and um, everything's getting a bit harder. And then you have to have some time off when you have to repay that debt. And of course, then we lose the training consistency. So we end up sliding backwards in our fitness. Meanwhile, Mr. Tortoise, who's going, been going along nice and steady, He's overtaken us. And in the long run, Mr. Tortoise will be further down the road because he hasn't had those ups and downs. Well said. I like that comparison. And it does require some patience and some restraint to look at this big picture and say, what am I trying to do here with training? And what you're trying to do is improve your aerobic conditioning, your endurance, so that you can go for a certain distance of a race. We're talking about the endurance uh, scene here. And so a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that a one hour sprint triathlon is a sprint race. And then the long distance race is the half Ironman. And look, anything over 15 minutes is purely an endurance activity. Mm. It's, you know, an extreme endurance event to go for one hour and the eight hours or the 12 hours or the crazy uh, ultra extreme stuff, you know, that's in a whole different category, but uh, we should kind of distinguish between when we use these words like sprint for triathlon and we're talking about the metabolism and uh, the energy systems that are used in the body. uh, There's some really interesting research and this is widespread exercise physiology notion. It's, it's nothing uh, new or unique, but um, we know that, 
an event as short as a minute and 15 seconds is 50-50. So it's 50% aerobic contribution, 50% anaerobic, which is shocking when I first realized that. Like, Mm. wow. So even the milers in the Olympics who are running, you know, a three minutes and change event, those guys are mostly endurance athletes. And that's why you see them running 80 to hundred miles a week, putting in a lot of over distance because they need so much endurance, even to race for a few laps around the track. So if we're talking about their recreational enthusiasts who likes to do five Ks, 10 Ks, mm. whatever it is, that's an extreme endurance machine that should be highly devoted to aerobic conditioning. And then Yes, indeed. The anaerobic uh, stuff, the hard stuff will improve performance tremendously, but you don't need to do that much of it. And by and large, most people are doing it incorrectly anyway, when they do go out there and go hard. Yeah. You mentioned the frustration with the math um, training heart rate. It seems that that frustration also um, rears its head more with running because to start with, you get the responses that people say, well, I can't run. I have to walk more than I'm running. So what's the point in that? I'm supposed to be doing an event that's running and now I'm walking. Now, so the, there's two things for me there. One, actually, we're training the cardiovascular system. And if the cardiovascular system's working at, I mean, for me, it's 123 beats a minute, then it doesn't matter whether you're pumping weights, whether you're walking or whether you're running, you are exercising the cardiovascular system um, equivalently. And the, the second thing there also with, with running is because it's um, – because you're supporting your own body weight, there is a certain there is a certain economy of movement that's involved in there as well, isn't there? And and I guess that those people who are where their heart rates are too high, they're just not efficient. They're not aerobically efficient and mechanically efficient at producing energy, and perhaps they need to dial it back a bit in order to develop that. Right, I think you know, relatively speaking, that's all we're worried about is what, what is the effort relative to your conditioning level? So if we're on the streets of London one day and we see Mo Farah flying by on a routine training run while he has a business meeting and whatever he's doing, and you can see this uh, amazing human athlete, he will be running by at five minute, 30 second per mile pace And for him, that's equivalent to a jog walk for most athletes because it's so easy for him uh, that he's running it, you know, 10, 15, 20 beats below his aerobic maximum. Mm. And that's where the elite athletes put a lot of a great percentage of their training time is on a pretty comfortable pace. And so to compare that to yourself And again, the elite athlete can train their body harder than the average athlete because these guys are genetic freaks and they can get away with all kinds of stuff. So you should actually be training at a lower relative Mm -hmm. intensity level to the elite athlete. But let's just say we're going apples for apples here. So we want to train like Mo Farah and you ask him what percentage of his maximum that it takes to go run these 530 pace miles. That's going to be a jog walk for you. And it is frustrating and it's mind blowing. And I think most of us want to get out there and mimic the example we see with the elites. But when we're trying to do that, it's really toning things down to the extreme. I, I don't know if you've seen Kipchoge's 30-day training plan when he, when he broke the Berlin Marathon. I'll, I'll put it on as a show note and, and send you it if you haven't. But it's really interesting the amount of time he spends there just running easy, or what he calls easy. But And what made me giggle is, he says, right, run 30K, first three or 4K running seven minutes per kilometer. Right. How many people, how many recreational athletes do you know that say, ah, there's no way I could run that slowly? Oh, hold on a minute. We've got a guy who's running three minutes per kilometer um, 
you know, for 10K and he's running at half speed as part of his warm-up and you run at six minutes per kilometre normally and you're saying you can't run a minute slower. What What's the difference? Why can he do it and you can't? Yeah, that's funny. I learned this lesson very, very long time ago, Simon. I was in college and I had a really rough time in the NCAA Division I uh, athletic experience. I got sick or injured five seasons in a row. And that's when I finally, you know, threw up my hands and, and gave up and went over to the sport of triathlon, which worked out much better for me. But when I was in the midst of this college running experience where we were pushed so hard every single day by the coach or by teammates who were overly competitive and just breaking down and falling apart. I remember uh, this is at UC Santa Barbara, a beautiful campus on the Pacific Ocean. And I was running down uh, one of the main trails away from campus back to my dormitories. And I came upon this much slower runner. And so I'm cruising up to this guy. And as I got, you know, 20 meters behind, I could see the muscle definition in his calves and his hamstrings as he was striding down uh, this trail at a very slow pace. It might be 10 minutes per mile or something, but his muscle definition was unbelievable. It was like, you know, a, a thoroughbred. And so I caught closer and closer and finally caught up to the guy and, and you know, made a greeting and then uh, was about to carry on at my own pace, which was probably an eight minute mile. You know, I wasn't going fast either, uh, but I looked back and immediately recognized uh, at the time was the third fastest human in history at 5,000 meters with a time of 1305. His name is Dr. Tomas Vessinhaga of West yeah, Germany. Yeah. Yes, yes. And he I was, remember him. Uh, yeah. you know, a world level athlete competed in the Olympics world. I think he uh, got a medal in the world championships at 5k. Uh, so here's the third fastest man on the planet. Mm going so slow that I have to, you know, blow by him on one of my easy training runs. So I slowed down and I said, are you Tomas? And he said, yes. And I said, a uh, couple questions. What are you doing at UC Santa Barbara? And, you know, number two, why are you running so slowly? And he was a really friendly guy. Uh, he told me that he was there and he, he had some training blocks that he'd like to spend in California. Uh, he and his wife were both physicians and they had some medical conferences to attend. And so anyway, that's why he was uh, out there training. And he said regarding his running speed, he goes, you know, when it's time to go easy, I go easy. And when it's time to go hard, I go hard. And so, you know, we may see this guy at the track running, you know, six times 1000 meters at two minutes, 42 to two minutes, 48 or whatever crazy stuff mm -hmm. these elite athletes can do, but not on an easy day. And so that was the, my initial exposure to polarized training at the age of 18, that I had permission to go plod along and run 10 minute mile pace because this was building toward whatever my next hard workout was rather than, as you said, at the outset of the show, you know, we're going kind of hard all the time, kind of hard. We're kind of recovered, not quite. Uh, but here's an elite showing me right in my face uh, so dramatically. And uh, I never forgot that. And they, you know, it just gave me more permission to, to take it easy. And when, when you get to triathlon and the training demand of three events, mm -hmm. that's when you really realize the important role of really, really easy workouts in there, but still putting in the time, putting in the swim stroke, pedaling the bicycle and building that aerobic base. Yeah. Steven Seiler refers to that 
that you've just talked about as intensity discipline, doesn't he? I mean, you need you sit you need a certain amount of emotional maturity to hold yourself back from, you know, you're riding out as an age grouper and you see a guy blow past you, and so you want to chase him down and show him that you're the boss on that Monday evening training ride where. You know, it's in the middle of April. It doesn't really matter then, but you still need to show me the boss. And then, oh, hold on a minute. Two days later, you need to show this guy you're the boss. And then, of course, on the group ride, you need to show everybody that you're the boss on the hills. So you never get any easy days. But the, but the smart guys, and I've heard this story about Mark Allen. I've heard this story about Craig Alexander, both great champions that, you know, they'll sit at the back of the rides, wherever it is, Boulder, San Diego, you know, they're chatting away. They turn around and go back because it was only a two-hour ride and, you know, they didn't need to go out to the top of the mountain that day. And I hear people say, yeah, but that's their champions. You know, they do that. I'm like, no, hold on a minute. They 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 got to be champions because they had an attitude. They didn't develop that attitude when they got to be champions. Um, and it, and it's really, it is really hard for the recreational athlete. I understand that, that, you know, you want to go hard. I hear people saying, I've loved this math training, but uh, um, now that I've got fitter, I really want to get back some proper running. Hold on, what's proper running? <laughs> what, what's oh, running hard? You mean well, you can run hard. Maffetone doesn't say that you can't run hard. Stephen Siler doesn't say you can't run hard. But when you go hard, go properly hard, and then recover by going easy, and then go properly hard again. Um, that's the hardest bit about coaching people through this, isn't it? Is that encouraging them to go easy when they need to? Yeah, and I think. Uh rather than judge or criticize, you know, people are free to do whatever they want. Mm. And so if you're all about just blowing off excess nervous energy and stressful uh, personal life circumstances by getting on your bicycle and pedaling and going and blowing by anyone who dares challenge you on the bicycle trail, that's fine. And it's okay. And it might be a nice outlet for all your frustrations and compulsions that you express in other areas of life too. So the premise here is that, hey, if you want to go faster, if you want to actually compete better and improve and also preserve and protect your health rather than challenge your health, then this is the, the <laughs> idea that we're talking about. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's nice to put it back onto the individual rather than lecturing them and saying, uh, you're doing it wrong. It's like, no, no, you, you can do it any way you want. Mm. Uh, but if you uh, are coming back with repeated injuries and defeats in competition and, and those kind of things, you know, that, that's where I came into this, uh, this evolution of the training, the training pattern was basically it emanated from getting my ass kicked on the pro circuit and being so discouraged and upset and, and asking myself, look, you know, I'm willing to work harder than anybody. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm so dedicated. I'm so disciplined. I'm so motivated. And then you realize that you have to point those weapons in a different direction. It's not the discipline to wake up at 630 on a cold, rainy morning in Leeds and head over to the swimming pool. That's not the discipline. Um, you know, the, the Brownlee brothers and everyone joining them, they're not having to, you know, uh, rally to get to the pool. They can't wait to get to the pool and they can't wait to train hard every day. But then as you get to the higher level of sophistication and training, it's the people that are having that discipline to stay in the back of the pack, like Alexander, or Mark Allen, and, you know, patiently uh, regulate that competitive intensity rather than just express unbridled competitive intensity at all times. Yeah, I think sometimes the the hard the definition of hard work gets uh, misrepresented. If you like, it's it's not about 
blowing your brains out in every session. The hard work is, is the discipline to turn up and make sure you keep turning up. And sometimes it's harder work to stay at the back of the lane and to have that intensity discipline and to do it regularly and, and to sort of uh, to, to burn those matches at the right time, isn't it? And to do the other stuff as well. I mean, we, we, we're talking about training here, Brad, and it's, you know, the endurance athletes that we, we're talking about, they love riding their bike, they love swimming, they love running. They perhaps don't do as much mobility work as they should do. They perhaps don't do as much strength work. They perhaps don't get as much sleep. And yet those things require hard work as well. And we know that you know, a bit like making a cake, you have to have all the ingredients in there, some of them in small amounts to make the cake taste great. And that's, that's another Stephen Silerism about, you know, you're going to make the cake and then you get the chance to eat it. And we have to have all these ingredients in there. And sometimes the hard work is making sure the small ingredients get input in as much as the, the big ingredients. I love it, especially the increased attention to flexibility, mobility, uh, those complementary skills mm. that really can go a long way. And I think that's why we're seeing the, um, the improvements in performance in track and field triathlon, uh, you know, the great athletes of, uh, ages ago were, were pretty darn impressive physical specimens. But now when these times get blown out of the water, uh, I think it's because the, uh, the sophistication of, uh, complementary mm. training methods, like working on explosiveness or, or something that an old time triathlete wouldn't, wouldn't pay any attention to. And now, uh, you know, it seems like the elite athletes are more balanced where they're in the gym working with a trainer with their stretch bands and uh, getting that hip flexor uh, mobility to increase by 5%. And then they go into the, the, the camera force plates and see where, you know, their, uh, their efficiencies can be improved a little bit rather than just blasting their brains out day after day and week after week with a lot of hard work. Uh, because that, you know, gets you to a certain level of effectiveness and then how are you going to improve 5%? Well, that's when you got to, you know, kind of roll up your sleeves and look at these little nuances. Well, and of course, on an event like a triathlon, and as you said, you know, even a sprint triathlon is an endurance event. It's often not aerobic capacity and fitness that's holding people back, particularly not on the super long range. You never, you never see somebody coming across the line in a half Ironman um, because they and slowing down because they're out of breath. They're slowing down because the body's tying up. And and you know the the guys that are still going well at the end. You watch them; they're still moving really well in the last few hundred meters. And that is down. And and that efficiency enables you to distribute your energy over a longer term, so you can keep you can keep the speed up. I think Chris McCormack said it's not actually the fastest guy that wins; it's the one who slows down the least. And that's what we're trying to do, isn't it? We've got a velocity and we're trying to maintain that velocity. And that comes through efficient use of energy, which is going back to the Mo Farah thing. He's become so efficient that he can move at those paces, you know, ad infinitum. Yeah, I, I like the example of, you know, going for a marathon and experiencing your hip flexors blow out at mile 20. Mm. And you're going to fight your way to the finish line and you're going to be working so hard, but you're going to be shuffling along the road. So you're going to be losing out on force potential, uh, you know, the explosive force that you can generate with each stride if your muscles are working properly. And so this, the last six miles is going to be a tremendous amount of hard work, especially mentally and even physically to lift those heavy legs off the ground and shuffle on one more stride. And it's all because uh, there was a flaw in your training method where either not enough recovery, right? This overtraining pattern, or you didn't challenge your muscles 
under that load that is similar to what's experienced at mile 20. And I would say for a simplified uh, insight here that let's say you put some heavy weight on the squat bar and once in a while you go into the gym and you know put yourself under tremendous resistance load of let's say one times your body weight. I'm not saying you have to be a big muscle head, but uh, if you you know put your muscles under that kind of load, that could simulate in many ways what's happening at mile 20 when you have to go six more miles. Now the thing is, you can go and do squats uh, during three week training blocks every few months or however often you're going to the gym and, and doing a few sets of squats, but you can't go out there and simulate mile miles 20 through 26 in oh. endurance training because the workout's too difficult. So that's, you know, once in a, once in a blue moon, you're going to be competing at that level. Uh, but I feel like there's ways to uh, shortcut to, let's say the 20 mile mark when you're in the gym doing explosive jumps up and down off the box, doing heavy squat uh, and other things like that. Even doing the stretch bands, you know, the, uh, the bands that you wrap around your ankles, they call mm. them mini bands or things that put your muscles under tremendous uh, challenge in a very short time not the exact same way that it is when you've run 20 miles and have to run six more, but that's where you can kind of imagine becoming a total athlete, a well-balanced and a highly competent athlete in different areas than just being able to shuffle forward down the pavement. I, uh, I'm not sure whether we should go back to nutrition, Brad, because that's, that's how you started out. I feel like we're on training now and there's a few, there's a few things I want to talk about. Let's, let's go back to nutrition. Um, I, I feel like I've been following your journey since we chatted and I read Primal Endurance. And then you've got this new book out. If people look over your right shoulder now, they can see it there, um, just about to fall out of the bookshelf. Um, two meals a day, the new book that's just come out, conveniently placed there, as, as all good presenters have learned in Zoom to have your bookcase uh, well arranged. Um, and the journey through that, you, you and Mark did a book about the keto reset. We, we talked about the lower carb, high fat nuanced thing. We've talked about metabolic flexibility, and we should perhaps sort of define that a little bit more. Um, then we talked about, you, you mentioned fasting as well, though, and it feels like there's been a journey and there's been some subtle changes along the way to the point now where you're at two meals a day. Um, and even in the things I've not mentioned there, um, moving away perhaps from so much fruit and veg and the salads, the big salads that Mark talked about in a previous podcast to less of that now and a bit more of the carnivore focus, which you've talked about in your podcast with uh, Dr. Saladino. Um, so talk, talk me through those, talk me through that journey and those changes and, um, and have, have they come about because of personal experiment and just thinking this isn't quite working. I need to sort of shift a little bit. Yeah. Good question. Thanks. I think we're all on this journey together and a constant quest to optimize health and adjust for whatever factors are coming up, including one's training patterns. So, you know, the more training you're going to do, you're probably going to have a correlating increase in uh, intake of nutritious carbohydrates to fuel that training and replenish glycogen. So that's kind of uh, trying to put that concept to bed that we talked about previously. Uh, but this new book, Two Meals a Day, uh, we're really excited about it because it's designed to appeal to uh, a broader audience than this kind of uh, niche freaky stuff like the paleo primal ketogenic diet, especially because it, it's so extreme. And I think really we have to have the smoke clear here and look and say, hey, what's, what's the big picture insights that can help anyone? And the main one that we see is that we eat too frequently. 
So even though we're making the good choices and we're shopping at the right markets, and maybe we're even uh, pricking our fingers and looking at our ketone values or tracking our carbohydrates on uh, a fancy app, uh, if you're constantly eating and snacking and uh, you know living off of meals rather than building this concept of metabolic flexibility, which ju just describes the ability to burn a variety of fuel sources to meet your immediate energy needs at exactly what you need at any time. And so the emphasis here is to become good at burning stored body fat and have stored body fat be your primary source of energy around the clock rather than these regular consistent feedings of, in, in many cases, high carbohydrate meals. And so we live on that carbohydrate train our entire lives instead of getting good at burning fat, skipping meals routinely whenever we feel like it or whenever we're you know too busy to eat. And it doesn't really matter because we just kick into fat burning. Uh, but I think uh, you know athletes don't have that... Uh, extreme need to, you know, go for fasting as the centerpiece of their day because they're metabolically flexible anyway from their, from their training patterns and their ability to burn a lot of energy in workouts. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with being hungry, right? You know, you, 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 I mean, in, in the modern Western society, particularly, you're never more than, you're never more than a few yards from somewhere that's dispensing some type <laughs> of food. If you really, um, start sort of feeling weak, but uh, there's, there's actually nothing wrong with being hungry. And there's, uh, you know, we take the um, various religions that have fasting built into their religious practice at certain times of the year, you know, and um, whether that's Ramadan or whether it's some of the Jewish uh, feasts where they have to um, where they have to fast for 24 hours. So it's, it, it, you know, and if you look back through history, fasting was was quite a usual practice. Yeah, that's true. And it's good to kind of uh, reawaken those skills. Um I know your listeners are pretty sophisticated, so I should mention that um, fasting and doing an intense, challenging workout kind of have the same uh, hormonal or, or hormetic stress to the body. And so what you're doing is you're starving your cells of energy and you're prompting a, a, a healthy uh, metabolic immune response, your, your cells, you know, respond by uh, pumping out antioxidants and uh, dividing more efficiently, repairing damaged cells and recycling and, and just uh, cleaning house basically. And so if you realize that both of those things are stressors, we don't want to overdo it by being a fasting freak and a workout freak and, and stacking that all up and trying to get gold stars in every category. And I had to kind of learn this the hard way, Simon, because I have another stressor to mention, and that is the age group of 50 plus. Okay. So here's this old guy trying to still do these crazy sprint and high jump workouts and get really good at fasting and ketogenic eating. And so when we were deep into the research of that book, The Keto Reset Diet, you know, I was, I was living the dream baby. I was, you know, limiting my carbs to 50 grams per day because that's the, the ketogenic template. And I was going and doing my sprint workouts and I was over 50. And so I felt with, like there were times where I crashed and burned from an accumulation of stress factors. And so now I'm, I'm more along the mindset of saying, look, if you're going to go push yourself with a challenging workout, uh, it may be the best strategy for many people to come home and have a nutritious meal and really 
re-nourish your, your energy that you just burned up during the workout. Uh, but on a day where I'm traveling through airports and there's no uh, options for you know super nutritious, delicious food, uh, I'll take the opportunity to fast. And I can easily fast for 24 hours without a problem. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you look on my secret top secret calendar, there might be days where I've engaged in 24-hour fasting. I probably do that uh, you know, five, six, seven times a year. No big deal. Uh, and then there's other days where it would probably, if you did a food journal on me, I ate a ton of food that day because I was I was busy. I did a great workout. I went to a party later that evening. And so I'm not beholden to some extreme rigid dietary pattern. But the big picture insight is what we're taking away here is that we eat too frequently. We eat the wrong kinds of foods. And so if you want to have an tremendous explosion improvement in your health, just cut out junk food and don't eat so frequently. And it really can be as simple as that. And then everything else we talk about downstream from that statement is just nuance and, you know, refinement and trying to, you know, get another 5% improvement. But the big picture, the the low hanging fruit is to just get rid of this heavily processed food that forms the centerpiece of uh, modern human diet. Yeah. It- Whenever I talk about, and you've, you've touched on it before, that, that nutrition's a bit like religion and politics, you know, you sometimes don't want to go there because it ends up with more arguments than, um, th- than sort of people agreeing. But the two meals a day and keto and low carb, high fat and fasting and anything, it's, it's fun, right? These are just experiments to see what happens. It's, it's this N equals one. And, and it does frustrate me a lot of the times when... Uh, we talk about things in, in some of my podcasts or in a blog and somebody will write and say, yeah, but what the research doesn't agree with that. The research says that this is wrong. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that research had a thousand people in it. And in that thousand people, there would have been 800 people that got on well with it. And there'll have been a few people that absolutely, you know, zoomed to the stars and there'll be a few people that it didn't work at all. So it's not everybody fell into the, the middle category of this research working. Um, and anyway, if if you like, and you you've had Tommy Wood on the show a few times. Tommy's been on my show, and uh, you know you you quote his phrase that he said, "Look, if something's working for you, why would I argue with that? I'm not bothered about the research. If keto works for you and it's sustainable, and you're happy and you're healthy and you can do your training, that's great. But it might not be the same for everybody. But it's a fun experiment, isn't it? And the two meals a day, you know, you can you can skip breakfast if you like." And, and see what happens then. You could skip your midday meal. That might be more of a challenge mm. for a lot of people to not eat during the day. Um, or you could, uh, um, I can't remember whether it was one of your guests. He uh, he worked out that not eating for 10 hours before he went to bed was the way to go. And so he, he doesn't eat anything after lunchtime. Um, but you've got to experiment with that to find out which, which ones suit you the best and which ones suit your lifestyle as well. Yeah, I think it's really important to, uh, keep an open mind and and strive to be open-minded and strive to think critically at all times because uh, we have this uh, tendency toward confirmation bias in the human. And yeah. then we spend the rest of our lives seeking uh, support for that confirmation bias. That means that we're looking for research that proves our opinions and our belief mm-hmm. systems. And so I really, as a, as a public figure and talking about this stuff, um, it's really, really important to me to keep that open mind. So I've had uh, guests on my show that are promoting uh, vegan vegetarian eating, which is kind of opposite from the carnivore, uh, you know, animal-based diet. Uh, but I think the the emergence of the carnivore diet is a good example of the importance of 
being open-minded and thinking mm -hmm. critically because um, it seemed like something of a ridiculous notion when Danny Vega first told me about it. This is now four years ago. I was sitting with this guy. He's a health expert, a very smart guy, you know, Columbia educated football player who now has a wonderful podcast called the Fat Fueled Family and a lot of products and programming for fitness. He's an extreme fitness machine, even into his 40s. And um, oh my gosh, he's telling me how he was doing this experimental diet of eating just animal foods and his body fat went down, all his blood, blood values improved. Uh, he was setting records in, in exercise and I'm like, oh, good for you. And I just, I just dismissed it you know, out of hand because it didn't align with my beliefs of having right. uh, a wonderful plate filled with uh, different colorful produce and the meat and the fish. And you know, there's your primal diet and this is what it looks like. Uh, but then uh, fast forward a couple of years later, and I heard Dr. Paul Saladino coming along and, and having these great uh, podcast interviews where in a very aggressive manner, he was challenging some of these uh, fixed beliefs that we uh, all held to be you know, kind of a centerpiece true, like, oh, of course, vegetables should be the centerpiece of your diet. And here's this guy coming in and saying, you know what, a lot of people might be having an adverse uh, allergic reaction to the natural plant toxins that are present throughout the plant kingdom. And we're all familiar with these. We know people that have a peanut allergy, that have to get rushed to the hospital. And we know that gluten tears people's, you know, gut lining apart. And a lot of people are suffering tremendously from that. So it's a common notion but we just don't apply it to the kale smoothie or the, uh, the, the superfood salad. And I felt like um, this guy really made a lot of sense. So did Dr. Sean Baker, who was breaking world records in our age group, Simon, 50 plus uh, on this meat-based diet where he wasn't even going into the nuance of nose to tail. He was having steaks and hamburgers and being the fastest uh, rower in the whole world and you know showing good blood values and all these things things. So I became more and more interested. And I think for me, it was an exercise in, you know, that, that open-mindedness and that critical thinking to go and test something else where it's saying, wow, do I really need this salad? Is this absolutely essential for my health? Or as we know from science, uh, a slice of liver is vastly superior nutritional density to this entire salad that I've carefully put together with all the different colors. And you sit back and go, wow. And then you think about the ancestral diet and the research mm -hmm. and the stuff they're doing with the Hadza and Tanzania. And you realize, you know, the human's resilient. It can eat a lot of different foods. But when we're talking about what's the best bang for our buck, um, I'm trying to up my liver game significantly and focus on those superfoods, the pastured eggs, the oily cold water fish. And so what does that turn into? Hey, guess what? It's an animal based diet because those are the location of the most nutritious foods on the planet. So I'm listening to you talking there, Brad, and, and reading between the lines, what I'm hearing is open-mindedness but also, also mindfulness in terms of when you when you get in these animal products, you're not just buying the stuff off the shelf at the easiest supermarket for you. You're probably researching where you can get grass-fed beef, where you can get organically raised, um, you know, chickens and get the eggs, and you can get all of this stuff. And you're eating nose to tail, and you probably go to the butcher or to the farm shop, and the butcher will tell you the name of the the, the name of the cow where that liver came from, or the name of the pig where that. Uh, that chop came from or the name of the chicken where those eggs came from and they'll be able to show you them running around the field and living happily and 
you're also um, probably investing something in products that are ethically raised as well, because you're, you're, um, you know, I know you've, you've, you're a chap who's interested in the environment, but you've not thrown the baby out with the bathwater and said, well, rearing animals is bad for the environment because so's, um, so's producing vegan shit in a factory. You know, that's just as bad. And yet that's what people are turning to when they're giving up meat. So, so I'm, uh, and that word mindfulness keeps cropping up in all of this is, is about not only being open-minded to the ideas, but then researching the food you're eating and making sure you're getting the best investment, regardless of whether that's vegan or carnivore or a blend of both. Yeah, well said. I think, you know, we, we owe it to ourselves and the planet to make the best possible choices. And the thing that's really cool about the, uh, the, the nose to tail, super nutrition, nutrient density, animal style eating is that even if you're on a budget and a really tight budget, you can still drift up to the highest ranking categories mm. without having it be super expensive uh, because right up there are the oily cold water fish which which are the least expensive fish you can you can get so yet you, you know the canned sardines mackerel herring uh, extremely affordable and some of the best foods you can eat and then you can go get pasture raised eggs and yes they doesn't cost uh, quite a bit more than you know the conventionally raised egg but we're still not talking about an expensive food and with the organ meats which are the real superstars of nutrient density mm. uh, they're not popular and so they're extremely inexpensive they're kind of the throwaways from the butcher compared to the you know the fine cuts of steak that are that are so ridiculously expensive i'm scared to buy that stuff cuz i'm i'm not a superior chef i don't want to ruin a, mm. a a steak that cost me $19 a pound. So um, I'm trying to up my liver game. You know that I uh, work with ancestral supplements and I promote this product called MoFo male optimization formula with organs. So it's uh, a bottled uh, freeze-dried animal organ meats. And this stuff can help you if you're not inclined to go looking for organs and cooking them you can still up the nutrient density of your diet with this supplement which is literally a food supplement it's just the animal organs uh, bottled up for you so it's easy to consume so it's kind of a nice journey to uh, realize that as my diet's changing over time it's getting more nutrient dense uh, better and better every time and trying to go for those highest ranking foods and emphasize those. And actually, if you go mm. to bradkearns.com, you can download this carnivore scores food rankings chart where we have in a tiered manner, uh, you know, the, the highest ranking food categories by nutrient density and then down the list. And I mentioned a lot of them just in our conversation here, we're talking about the pastured eggs and the organ meats and all that fun stuff. And so it kind of helps you, you could print this out, stick it on your fridge and see how you're doing uh, on the ranking system of the most nutritious foods. My, my favorite breakfast is uh, after I've come back from my ride, so fasted ride, two hours, some uh, sourdough bread from the local bakery. So I know I know that it's freshly made every day. I know the ingredients. I speak to the uh, speak to the mm -hmm. baker. Um, scrambled eggs with uh, herring mm. and uh, avocado avocado butter. Wow! So um, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my breakfast. Oh, and some some uh, some olives as well, mixture of olives. So wow. yeah. That's that's my favourite breakfast after a ride. So I'm my my, my uh, I'm salivating as I'm riding as I'm riding back the last day on and some uh, some fresh coffee as well, freshly brewed coffee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And, you know, that's, that's, that's something I was introduced to in Scandinavia, because if you go to Sweden or Norway and you get up and you're in the hotel and you come down in the morning, there's not really any of the traditional cereals and breads that you get there in most Western restaurants. There's the, there's the raw herring and there's the scrambled eggs and there's some, you know, there's some fresh meats and everything, but where's all the cereal? There may be a little bit of Alpen, but it's all nuts and seeds and mm. raw stuff that's maybe been soaked overnight with some sort of proper, um, it's not Greek yogurt they use, but it's that, that other sort of um, Norwegian type of uh, type of thing that somebody will probably correct me on when we've, when we've got mm-hmm. off the podcast. But that that is that is such a nutrient dense thing, and and also, you know, I've I've experienced this myself. Whether it is with salads or the good quality sort of dairy products or meats that you're talking about, is when you eat something that's so so nutritious, you can taste the flavors, but it takes you a while of getting yourself off the refined sugars to improve your palate to be able to taste those flavors. And once you start tasting those flavors. Then when you go back to something that's just refined or processed, it, it just it's just so overwhelmingly powerfully unpleasant on your mouth. Do you find that? Oh yeah, good point. I mean, I remember just when my I first started out with Sisson, and this is now 2008, and we're working on the Primal Blueprint, and I'm learning myself about how y- y- you shouldn't eat grains, and so I'm, I'm talking to Mark like, "Hey, w- what about oatmeal? Is that a grain?" Yeah, man, it's a grain. You can't eat that. And so we're learning to uh, recalibrate the diet. And uh, it turns out that dark chocolate is a a thumbs up approved food. It's got a lot of antioxidant phytonutrient benefits. Uh, It's low in sugar. And, you know, the greater percentage of the bar, the greater cacao percentage uh, rated on the bar, um, you know, the more health benefits and and the less uh, offense it comes with sugar. And so it's time to switch from milk chocolate to dark chocolate. And I remember at first having my first dark, dark chocolate bar <laughs> and it tasted like chalk. It was really tough yeah. to uh, appreciate that flavor having had lifelong consumption of the processed chocolates that, you know, we grew up on as kids and continue to dominate uh, the chocolate scene today. Uh, but now here we are 13 years later, I'm a huge dark chocolate enthusiast. I eat so much of that chocolate. I don't have to worry about my carb intake. You know, I get the, the incidental carbs from 85% dark chocolate, but if you eat an entire bar every single day, you're, <laughs> you're going to be doing fine. Uh, but the point I was making is like today, when I take a bite of milk chocolate, yeah. it is so disgustingly sweet that I literally do not appreciate it and do not want uh, you know, the, the, the taboo bar that's got too much sugar in it, but uh, that I originally had very difficult time switching over to dark chocolate. So it's fascinating how the palate changes and I'm not lying. I'm not making up a story so that I can sell more dark chocolate. I'm, I'm not a seller of it. I'm a consumer of it. Uh, but it's really interesting how this, if I could have anything I wanted in the world, I would go for the, you know, 85 to 90% dark chocolate that I enjoy. And guess what? I found a, a new one uh, called pump street and the UK is in play right now because this is one of the best Whoa. in the world. And they make it uh, right in, um, it's called Pump Street Chocolate, but the the factory is on Pump Street. I forget what city though, I'm trying to see here on the label, uh, but it's one of the best chocolate bars I've ever had. Yeah. Oh, Suffolk, England. So okay. it's on Pump yeah. Street in Suffolk. Yeah. Right. We'll, we'll look at, for that. We'll we'll put that in the uh, show notes though, Brad. You, you won't be able to get any anymore because it'll all be sold out to UK listeners. <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, where, where are you with your diet now then? Have you, have you completely eschewed um, the vegetables and the salads or are you just a bit more, um, do you ration them out a bit more? You know, I'm pretty much off the vegetables and the salads and I wouldn't call myself an extremely sensitive uh, to the plant antigens, the plant toxins, like some people. Uh, but I did notice over time, some adverse effects, especially from consuming this super duper green nutrition smoothie that I was drinking, uh, until I made this radical change in my diet, uh, really inspired by Saladino and Baker, uh, two and a half years ago. And so I would have these big smoothies where I'd stuff down, uh, the raw kale, celery, beets, spinach, carrots, and, and jam them into this expensive blender and blend it all up and thinking, Hey, this is the greatest thing that I could drink. And guess what happened? Every single time I drank the smoothie, I would experience a, a bloating of the abdomen where my stomach would puff out and it would last for three or four or five hours. Mm. And it was kind of disturbing because you're thinking in the back of your mind, like, Hey, if I'm drinking this thing, that's so healthy for me, uh, you know, Dr. Rhonda Patrick with a million views of her vegetable smoothie on YouTube. And I'm like, wow, this lady's smart. This is the best stuff. I'm putting it all together in a concentrated form. So I'm getting the best dose possible. And now I'm learning that, you know, I'm, I'm ingesting these poisons that my body might have a hard time with, especially in that tremendously high volume, especially in an uncooked form where the plant toxins are more extreme than when you cook them, soak them, sprout them, ferment them out, like your sourdough bread is, you know, less offensive because it's a freshly made product and it's been fermented and all that stuff. And so, you know, that caused me to sit back and think, there's got to be something wrong with this picture. If my stomach is blowing up because I'm drinking this uh, beverage that's supposed to be so healthy. So I, I kind of second guessed that notion and I put them aside for a while and I did feel better. And boy, the miracle healing stories that you're getting from people that are switching to an animal-based diet and cutting out those plant toxins are something of an eye opener. And anyone listening who's experiencing uh, a nagging, autoimmune or inflammatory related condition, you owe it to yourself to try a 30-day dietary exclusion where you cut out all plant foods and see if you get an improvement in your symptoms. And I'm not talking about just digestive symptoms, but all manner of autoimmune and inflammatory conditions, asthma, arthritis, all kinds of things could be related to your sensitivity to plant toxins. So that's kind of the, the mm. plug for trying this stuff out and exploring it. Uh, but my main source of motivation, again, is just to up the nutrient density of my diet. So today, instead of the plant smoothie with all the green stuff in there, um, this is how I get my liver because I'm not a huge fan of cooking liver, but I, I freeze it up. And so I have these chunks of frozen liver and I'll dump all those into the blender and I'll throw in frozen bananas too, to get some flavor and not have to be drinking this liver tasting thing. Uh, but it's a great way to get a super dose of nutrition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of just coming full circle from uh, throwing all the leaves and vegetables in there. Yeah, I, can, I mean, again, we're back to that open mindedness, aren't we? Give it a try and see what happens, particularly if you are suffering from some stomach issues that are, that are made worse, maybe by consumption of vegetables. However, I, I will also, I, I can imagine there'd be a lot of people that are going to listen to this and say, well, hold on a minute, because when we listen to, uh, you know, 10 experts, eight of them are saying, well, we need variety in our diet and we need to get the colors of the rainbow. And uh, you know, I had, um, 
I had a, a gut microbiome specialist on and she was saying, you know, you need to try and try and get over 30 different vegetables in your diet and, you know, fruits and nuts and seeds in your diet in a week. And so people were trying to, yeah, I'm, I'm at 28. I need, I need three more <laughs> to get over that one there. So again, this is the confusion that comes, isn't it? In, in what's right and what's wrong and hmm. come and be in your own experiment. Yeah. And I think, um, we have to uh, look to that evolutionary example because it's the most severe and the longest running scientific study in the history of humanity. It's two and a half million years going, <laughs> and we're here at the top of the food chain, the Homo sapiens, and we're very, very resilient creature. We can consume a variety of uh, plant and animal foods and, and, and try to make it work and survive. And that's what our ancestors did is they colonized all the areas of the globe. But for someone to contend that we need to get this amazing variety of vegetables in our diet, that's not aligned with uh, evolutionary anthropology. It's just not. So we can uh, come out with, you know, we can come out swinging with that insight that our ancestors that lived above the 60th parallel, all they ate was oily cold water fish. That's the only way they were able to survive mm. because they didn't have enough sunlight to make vitamin D. So they didn't have any vegetables and they did just fine. And still, you know, these isolated populations that we can study uh, that eat, you know, a, a very limited uh, option in the diet, but they're, they're, they're plugging along. So I think it goes back to personal experimentation. And then one other plug that we should throw in is like, hey, guess what, people? Um, we want to enjoy our lives too. And we don't want to get stuck in this uh, orthorexic pattern. That's a term for an obsession with, um, you know, health perfection and rigidity of the diet to the extent that it becomes unhealthy and stressful. So I'm a big fan of enjoying myself, but I don't want to take those free passes too far and every day wake up and say, hey, you know, it's time to enjoy life. Hey, everything in moderation, because you can fall down this slippery slope where you no longer have discipline or structure. And it's just a free for all and anything you see, you reach for the candy bowl because it's Halloween time at the office. And then uh, once Halloween's over, then it's Thanksgiving. And then uh, you, you ate too many cakes and pies. And then, oh my gosh, here it is Christmas time. So I'm not going to worry about my diet until, uh, until New Year's. And we go down this pattern where we're just victims rather than someone who, <laughs> you know, takes control and has discipline and structure and focus. I was listening to another of your colleagues, L, interviewing CJ Hunt, and he talks about the um, in search, was it documentary in search of the perfect diet, I think, something mm -hmm. like that. And he talks about how they're on a football field, an American football field. So it, the grid's all marked out and, you know, they were, they were standing at different parts, looking mm -hmm. at the evolution of, of nutrition, as you talked about there. And he said, what we're going through now the last 50 years where cereals and bread and all of these processed foods have been in, that would be like the last two feet on the pitch, you know? Mm -hmm. So you've got a hundred yards of evolution. And then the last two, the last two feet on the pitch represents the changes that have gone through our diet in the last couple of generations that we've understood, you know, our grandparents and our parents, um, which, which puts things into perspective a little. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's um, a good vote for, uh, the ancestral style diet, really. And then, you know, the amount of time it takes to evolve, for example, for the human to evolve, to become better at digesting uh, sugary beverages, it's going to take, you know, 80,000 years minimum or something. So we don't want to wait around until we get better at digesting sugar, just because we've been throwing it down our throats for the last few generations. We want to go back to that ancestral example and try to recreate mm. uh, and adapt 
the modern ways to, you know, our ancestral experience. And that's, um, you know, the, the tag line of ancestral supplements is putting back in what the modern world has taken out. <laughs> and that's the nose to tail organ meat consumption that was a centerpiece of the ancestral diet. And now it's just completely marginalized, even though uh, only a couple generations ago, so we can all reference our own grandparents mm. had all these traditional cooking styles, whatever culture, ethnicity you're from, there's so many wonderful health benefits. You mentioned the Norwegian, uh, you know, centerpiece foods that still, you know, you know, prevail to this day. And so they're up there eating raw herring and that's kind of their, you know, an example of uh, Scandinavian culture. What a wonderful thing to try to preserve and keep in there rather than just throw a bunch of, you know, multinational food conglomerate cereals onto the buffet in the hotel in Oslo. That would be tragic if I went up there and saw Kellogg's uh, pumping out their various things out of the jars like they do in all the American hotels. I, um, you refer back to your, you know, grandparents. I, I think about where my grandma um, was alive, and I used to go and stay with her as a little boy. And we'd go, we'd walk up to the, we'd walk up to the shops, the individual shops, no big supermarket. The butcher would would be there, and of course, all of those meats that we talk about, that you've talked about there, the liver, the offal, the the kidneys, the heart that would be out on display. You don't see those anymore because they're less popular and people are put off by them. So it's just the best cuts of chicken and meat. She would get those that the um, the uh, the butcher would throw in a couple of hearts or a couple of liver bits of liver for her. Mm. We'd then go to the uh, greengrocers and we'd pick seasonal vegetables, not stuff that had been flown in from South America, but what the, what had come off the local farms and was and was um, good for that time of year. Uh, we'd then walk back down. Um, my grandma would cook the food from scratch, and we wouldn't waste any because you know in that time my my grandma was still remembering the years after the war when there were rationings and you didn't want to 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 waste anything um she would uh, in the evening she and my granddad would go out into the allotment and uh, so they would be growing their own vegetables there she'd bring flowers in so there was they'd be they'd be active in the garden um my grandma uh, my granddad was cycled to work and back every day so he didn't need to go to the gym because he was he was moving around my grandma was moving around cleaning the house and it, when you go back to that ancestral life and you think again about in the last 50, 60 years, the reason we need to go to the gym, the reason we need all these gadgets to, keep, to tell us to keep moving is that modern life has allowed us to move out of what's normal. And yet if we did all of that natural moving um, that our, you know, our recent ancestors did, we wouldn't need to do all of this fitness training, would there? There'd be no need for us as coaches, Brad, because people would just be moving regularly. Yeah, well said. And we can, we can all do the best we can. And if you have to go to the gym, cause you sit around doing your job, that's great. That's mm. fun, fun stuff to always explore ways to uh, reconnect. You talked, you've talked about the Hadza tribe. There's been a lot of research. I do, I do wonder whether they're getting so used to Westerners doing the research that they're adopting the Western lifestyles now, you know? Yeah, of course you can come along as long as you bring us a TV and a car, but um what, what have we learned from the Hadza tribe? Um, there's a few things I've picked up from you, but I'm not really uh, f- fully conversant with these. Um, one's the patterns of eating, and it's not all about eating vegetables. And the other is this uh, um, idea about the maximum daily calorie burn that Herman Pons is talking about in his latest book, The Burn. Um, and I'm, I'd be really interested if you explain that, that part to our listeners as well. Yeah, that's pretty mind-blowing. I would highly recommend that book, and it kind of, uh, you know, destroys the foundational 
premises of the diet and the fitness industry that we can uh, burn enough calories to lose uh, excess body fat by going to the gym more frequently. And this is Ponser's life's work. He comes back strong. If anyone wants to challenge, he says, look, the data doesn't lie. I'm not just some crazy guy saying that we have a constrained amount of calorie burning each day, but it's it's amazing, mind-blowing notion to think, quote, we burn around the same number of calories every day, whether or not we work out. What? What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, I just went on a two-hour bike ride and I, and I fasted for that bike ride. And now I'm going to have the sandwich and I'm I'm going to blow my neighbor away who uh, who woke up and had two sandwiches and didn't do any bike riding. Uh, but this is what the the research bears out. And I think this started 10 years ago when they went over to measure the calorie expenditure of the Hadza and realized that despite their extremely active lifestyle in comparison to the average Westerner, they burned around the same number of calories as the person sitting in an office in London and, and taking the tube home. And so how could this be? And then you get into you know the fascinating insights presented in the book that this calorie burning is constrained by the Homo sapiens species. And the Homo sapiens burns more calories than the gorilla and the gorilla burns uh, more calories than the chimpanzee. And so all this stuff is mainly our genetics and our, our makeup as humans, rather than whether we jogged or walked to the, uh, to the park or not. And so, um, yeah, it's a lot to unwind and it's a lot to kind of reflect upon and say, um, you know, gee, I missed my workout today. I feel terrible and I'm going to get fat. Well, you know what? You're burned around the same number of calories, no matter what. And oh, by the way, if you try to, um, kind of hack this story with extreme calorie burning in your workout regimen, uh, you're going to borrow from other critical health and metabolic functions. And so here's another quote, uh, reproduction, repair, growth, and locomotion are a zero sum game. So if you devote a lot of energy expenditure to locomotion training, right? Burning calories through uh, lifting weights, pedaling your bicycle. If you overload the locomotion part of the equation, you're going to borrow from reproduction, repair, and growth. Uh, the best, most uh, blatant example of this is the elite female athlete who it's very common to experience amenorrhea, the cessation of menstruation, because their body fat is so low. So if you look at the Olympic 10,000 meter field, uh, not a lot of those women are menstruating because they're so highly and heavily trained and have so little body fat that they are not fertile. They are not able to reproduce or, uh, you know, do that critical human function. Um, and so... If you think about that on a, on a smaller scale, uh, the extreme endurance athlete who's training a lot and catching a cold very frequently or having, you know, overtraining periods and injuries, overuse injuries, things where the body is breaking down behind the scenes because they're devoting too much energy to locomotion. And we have a constraint. We're not just energy burning freaks. We, we kind of tone things down at a certain point and borrow from other, you know, important human functions. And then speaking of that, um, maybe you did pedal your two hours on the bike this morning, but guess what? That is 
is going to dictate some of your behaviors throughout the rest of the day, <laughs> where you're going to be moving a little bit slower. You're going to be naturally a tiny bit more lazier. Uh, you're going to be consciously and subconsciously adjusting your eating habits to recalibrate and kind of compensate for the energy that you burned on the bicycle, meaning you're going to eat a little bit more food. You're going to be a little bit more likely to reach for a second helping of whatever it is 12 hours later at dinner time. And so this is kind of the, uh, it's known as the compensation theory of exercise uh, or the constrained model of energy expenditure. Those are two terms that'll kind of acquaint you with this amazing notion that it's not you're burning X number of calories exactly every single day. And then you're adding on 600, like the machine says at the gym that you just burned. And that's how you're going to lose body fat. It just simply doesn't work that way. And it's kind of, I think, freeing and uh, mind altering to think, hey, it's, you know, it's not about uh, this, this obsession with numbers. It's just about living a healthy lifestyle. And then backing into, let's say, your body composition goals, because you leave this healthy, active lifestyle, and that helps, helps regulate your appetite, helps you burn body fat, so you're not having these hunger spells where you just have to eat and eat and eat. And that's kind of what we see in obesity and metabolic dysregulation is people have an extreme out-of-control appetite because their hormones are all thrown off. And so they're literally hungry and needing to eat more food throughout the day just to stay awake or just to stay functional. And that's the work of Gary Taubes talks about this and a lot of other people where um, the Gary Taubes quote is gluttony and sloth are not the causes of obesity. They are symptoms of obesity. Yeah. Somebody, ref uh, a surgeon that I coach, he was referred me to a book called why um, is it what makes us fat or why do we, why do we eat so much? Um, that's just come out as well that probably refers to that same topic. I'm I'm listening to you talking about the, the you know the constrained model of energy expenditure there. And I'm I'm thinking also of some other research which was done in Australia, which identified this phenomenon of the active couch potato. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. For listeners, I'll, I'll explain that and then you can you can jump in and link these two together, Brad. But um, as athletes, we're, we're keen to get up and do our early morning workout. And so we do, we go to the pool or we go for a run before we go to work. And then we feel morally, morally superior because our sedentary colleagues have got off the train or they've, they've got out of the car and they've come in and, you know, we, we've done our 10K run. We've burned a thousand calories and all they do is shuffle around the office, going from the photocopier to the vending machine, going up the stairs to the bathroom. And they're not very fit really, but actually the, um, the research identified the fact that in terms of long-term health, uh, they may actually be better placed than us when we do our one hour of exercise and then sit in front of our computer for eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. Active couch potato syndrome uh, suggests that the, the same disease risk factors associated with sedentary living are seen in people who are devoted to that, that one hour a day in the gym. Okay. Guess what? An hour a day in the gym is pretty impressive. Um, so you go every single day, that's seven hours a week and there's 168 hours in a week. So there's another 161 hours where if you're sitting around, of course, that seven hours is not going to make much of a dent in your risk factors. So that's a vote for uh, this increasing all forms of general everyday energy expenditure rather than just fixating on your workout patterns. You want to be a more active human in general. Which moves us nicely onto one of your current little projects, micro workouts. Now, I thought I was the one who invented this, but it seems like on the other side of the pond, people were working on it simultaneously. It's something that I've, I've uh, encouraged 
um, personal training clients and uh, athletes to do for a long while now. I know um, you're a fan of Pavel Satsulin as well, and he has his little um, grease the groove that he calls it and uh, on the hour every hour. And particularly doing uh, during the pandemic and when people have been working from home, it's been something that's really um, become very popular amongst my training group is to have these um, what I call um, get off your ass workouts and having 10 exercises that they can choose from and do do one of those exercises every hour just for a minute. Or you, you talk about every time you walk past your pull-up bar, just doing a couple of pull-ups or a minute's worth of kettlebell swings. So um, tell me how that's evolving for you and um, how, how you use it in your daily uh, daily movement practice. Well, I think there's so many benefits to it. One of them being that there's not that intimidation factor or that complexity or that logistics factor. So uh, whoever you are, however busy you are, uh, there's plenty of time and there's easy resources to put your body under resistance load and do something brief and explosive throughout the day. And the cumulative fitness benefit is phenomenal. Um, the other thing that I think is really valuable, beneficial for me is I have a tendency to overdo it when I get over to the gym and I'll feel sore for three days after doing my deadlift set because I'm uh, a motivated, enthusiastic, competitive guy and I'll go in there and maybe I don't have the, the best foundation because I'm not in there four days a week for years and years on end. And so, you know, that, uh, that drawback of pushing yourself a little too hard with a formal workout uh, certainly isn't there when we're talking about a micro workout. So if I sprint up one flight of stairs, which I am uh, have a tendency to do, that's just my fun thing to do is when, I, when it's time to climb the stairs, uh, I'll sprint every time. And it's one flight. It's not making me tired from my workout tomorrow. It's not compromising my recovery if I'm on a recovery day. Same with doing one set of pull-ups. It's neither here nor there. But then when we talk 365 days from now and I mm -hmm. say, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know what? I probably do uh, you know, 50 to 75 extra pull-ups per week, not counting the stuff I'm doing in a proper workout that I'm writing down in my journal. And we times that by, you know, uh, by 50. 52 weeks a year, uh, we're talking about a massive amount of, you know, fitness effort that can accumulate and really boost your fitness without, you know, making a dent in this uh, constant quest to perform and recover from the formal workouts. That's my favorite part of it. Yeah. The, the one pushback I get on, on, on this is people saying, well, if I'm going to do a set of kettlebell swings, don't I need to warm up first before I do them? But of course we're not, mm. we're not, and it's a valid point, but we're not talking about going to a maximal deadlift, are we? Or a maximal kettlebell swing. We're talking about lifting a moderate weight and doing something for a minute and um, quite gent gently, really compared to the maximum load. Yeah. I think, you know, we want to have a certain fitness foundation before we fool around and pick up a kettlebell. So it's definitely a valid, a valid point there. Uh, there's some other things you can do, like let's say uh, doing air squats, you know, at your desk. And so if you can do uh, 20 squats up and down out of the chair, whatever, I don't think anyone has to warm up for that. Right. So we want to make it, you know, fitness level appropriate and certainly not do something goofy. Uh, and, you know, when I say sprint up a flight of stairs, uh, that's me. So maybe don't try this at home unless you have some, you know, capability there where you're not going to pull an Achilles tendon out of your body. But you can walk up those stairs two at a time, can't you? And that'll give you a little bit more. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or you can go up and down the stairs twice if you're going up to the bathroom. 
Um, it's just about, and, it. And, it, and again, it's just about making sure you get out of your seat every hour um, to keep moving. So all of those little metabolic um, nasties that start taking place when we don't move uh, are kept at bay, and we keep we keep the uh, we keep the engine ticking over. Hey, Simon, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. I think we hit all our our talking points. It was great, and um, gee, uh, maybe we should do it again in, in three years uh, and see see what's new at that point because there's always new stuff coming out. Yeah, I'd like, I think I'd like to do it sooner than that, Brad. I, I feel like there'd be, too, <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be too much for us to talk about if we left it three years. You uh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're introducing new stuff all the time. Listen, I've, I've still got so many more questions for you, but uh, I know you've got other things to do today. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, we're going to put all of these. Uh, we, we talked about a lot of resources there. You mentioned a lot of smart people that we haven't had on the show yet, and I'm going to refer to them. I'm going to I'm going to talk about your MoFo supplements. We'll send people to your website. And of course, that that book that's on your right shoulder there, two meals a day. Right on. Thanks for being on the show, Brad Kent. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care now. Thank you to Brad for joining me again on the High Performance Human Podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this show, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or get the app for your mobile device. Oh, and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Right, that's all for this week. We'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and please stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.